This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. One of the most straightforward ways, at least in theory, of trying to settle a dispute is for a party to make a settlement offer to the other side. That can also allow an element of flexibility or creativity in the outcome, which may not always be available as part of a court judgment. And that can be particularly important with property disputes. On today's property patter, we're going to look at the basics of how settlement offers work. Joining me for this exercise are Caroline Greenwell, a partner in our commercial dispute resolution team, and Sam Lear, an associate in our real estate disputes team. So as I said, settlement offers are a key part of trying to resolve disputes and court proceedings. So Sam, perhaps you could start us off uh, by just explaining a bit about what these typically entail. Settlement offers are usually made with a view uh, towards avoiding the pain and cost of litigating all the way through to trial and possibly beyond. So there are two types of settlement offers that that we're going to cover today. Um, There's one that follows a process under the civil procedure rules in part 36, and the other which we perhaps encounter more frequently known as without prejudice, savers to costs, offers or call to bank offers. So the issue of settlement offers becomes crucial normally at the end of the trial after a court has made a decision on the main issue. And that is because the default position is that the loser pays the winner's costs. But what happens, for instance, if the winner had behaved particularly unreasonably, is it fair that the losing party should pay the winner's costs in their entirety. And the case of Calder Bank and Calder Bank itself in 1975 probably explains, provides a really useful context for this. Um, and if, if I may, I'll, I'll quickly explain the facts because it's actually a family law case. It, it concerned divorce proceedings where before a trial, Mrs. Calder Bank offered the property of a value of around £12,000. But at trial, the judge decided uh, to award Mr. Calderbank £10,000, so less than what Mrs. Calderbank was offering. The difficulty in this case is that Mrs. Calderbank, when making that offer, used the heading without prejudice and not save as to costs. This meant that the court was not able to regard that as evidence when making a costs award. When appealing that judgment, the court decided that this was inherently unfair and among other things, uh, allowed the appeal and Mrs. Calderbank was entitled to her costs because Mr. Calderbank had rejected an earlier reasonable offer. So that provides a general useful introduction as to um, the nature of Calderbank offers. Yes, it certainly does. I'm, I'm, I, although I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the fact that you could get a house for twelve thousand pounds in 1975. <laughs> those, those were the days, eh? <laughs> I, was, I was trying to look at the um, the Zoopla uh, house price now, but I couldn't find it, unfortunately. Oh, that would have been interesting. That would have been <laughs> interesting. But you know, there you go. It's you know, sensible approach, and actually, when I did a podcast uh, a little while back when we were talking about the headings of subject to contract and without prejudice. Um, we, we had a chat on that podcast and we were trying to rack our brains as to whether we'd 
you know, we, we had so rarely seen an offer that, or indeed correspondence that was just marked without prejudice, you know, nearly always it, it's marked without prejudice, safe as to cost, you know, it's better, better be safe than sorry. Um, but the, part, part 36, obviously you've mentioned there, Sam, is involving a more kind of formal process. Caroline, perhaps you'd explain a bit more about what uh, does part 36 actually mean? What is that? <laughs> so part 36 is a special type of offer. Um, it's independent of the usual contractual rules of offer and acceptance and normal cost rules that apply when a piece of litigation concludes, as, as Sam's just explained. Um, so unimaginatively, it takes its name from the part of the civil procedure rules uh, where, where those rules are contained. Um, and Part 36 offers are always treated as without prejudice, save as cost. Now, it has the potential to bring about significant cost consequences at the conclusion of a case, depending on the outcome, which is the main reason that they are made, uh, and we'll come on to that in due course. Um, in order to trigger the cost consequences, however, the offer must comply with the very precise requirements of Part 36. Very easy to get wrong, and a minor deviation means losing all of the benefits of those consequences. Um, so the strictness of those requirements is partly why you'll see them often made by solicitors who are very familiar with the, the precise rules. So just to give you a flavour, rather than take you through those rules, to give you an idea of the kind of requirements, it's things like the offer must be made in writing, it must make clear on its face that it's pursuant to Part 36, it must specify a period for acceptance of the offer which is not less than 21 days, and within which the defendant will be liable for the claimant's costs um, if an offer is made by the claimant to accept a certain sum. Um, so that's known as the relevant period. Again, we'll come on to that. The list goes on. So that's just to kind of give you an idea of the purpose of them, but also the precision with which um, they need to be made. Yes, and as you say, it's quite. There are some quite detailed rules around these, aren't they? I mean, Absolutely. I nearly always, you know, I get asked by surveyors, you know, does it have to be a solicitor who makes the part thirty six? And I say, well, no, it doesn't. Doesn't have to be. It's there's no rule that you know we have to make the offers. But you know, it's a bit in our world. It's a bit like break notices. You know, in theory, people should be able to draft their own break notices. You know, just follow the lease clause. Um, Sam's laughing now because you know. <laughs> The, the things that we see, you know, the things that we see, however clear the lease clause is, or, you know, in this case, however clear the Part 36 rules are. Um, it, no, absolutely. It's just I mean, not that easy. No, of course not. And actually, there is a pro forma within the civil procedure rules. Um, so the safest possible way to do it is really to fill in a form. Now, often you, you don't want to do that because you might want to surround your offer with some other narrative. But actually, a really simple way of not getting it wrong is to is to use that pro forma. Yes, that's a good point. You have got the court form there if you want to do it exactly. yourself, haven't you? Yes. Um, and it, I mean, it's interesting as well in the property context, you see that, you know, you said about the 21 day period. And, you know, if a defendant accepts in that time, it, it, yeah. you know, they're automatically liable for the cost. And that's often why with the property case we have to think quite hard well, it's not just specific to property but very mm. often there are certain types of litigation you know thinking obvious example would be an unopposed lease renewal for us um where the parties would usually expect to bear their own costs of that and so for us sometimes um you know with real estate disputes um uh, you know it can be more appropriate to to use the call to bank than the part 36 and to have those automatic consequences but i mean it's the same in all cases isn't it you always yeah. have to think about your circumstances 
Exactly right. And, and sometimes it just won't suit because you are then opening yourself up to very precise rules about costs and you can't just build those into the negotiations. So um, absolutely right. Yeah. And people find that a bit odd as well with part 36. And Sam, you know, you said about the call to bank offers, what sort of formulas, you know, we talked about the heading, obviously, um, what do people have to comply with there? Um, I think it's fair to say they're less tricky, aren't they, than part 36? They are definitely less tricky. And thinking back to part 36, I remember at law school, my tutor constantly (laughs) ramming it home that uh, it's entirely logical. It took me quite a long time to get my my head around it, whereas cold bank offers are far more straightforward, provided that they contain their heading without prejudice savers to costs. Um, it's there aren't any particularly onerous requirements after that. It, it, it can contain any proposal for settlements. It may or may not contain um, an offer that involves a payment from one party or another. It can cover a whole manner of different different things. Um, but yes, the form of words is essential. And this was confirmed in the case of Reed and Reed in the Court of Appeal in 2004. And it goes back to what the case of Calderbank mentioned as well that without prejudice automatically means that the court cannot regard it whereas without prejudice savers to costs heading means that the court can regard it on the matter of costs and this is why lots of legal letters that that are made on without prejudice savers to costs basis make explicit mention of of their right to refer that item of correspondence to the court's attention yeah and just to put some sort of flesh on the bones if you like of that I mean sometimes it's hard for people to imagine what that means but you will both know that what that means is we we do literally create a whole separate without prejudice bundle and agree it with the other side in advance of trial and and that bundle stays firmly on our sides (laughs) of the desks um, until uh, you know we get the judgment and we know which way the judge has decided and then at that point we produce our without prejudice bundle um and say we'd like to talk to you about costs please and then and only then at that point um will the judge see that correspondence um he or she will not see it you know in advance of that point so it's a it's a very real thing those headings you know it gets taken out quite separately and treated very separately it's always that moment when everybody's sitting there when the judge is giving the judgment isn't it and and of course the rest of the room all know what this means (laughs) exactly they know what's coming next (laughs) and have quite a different outcome um and perhaps delving into these differences between calder banks and part 36 a bit deeper um Caroline, do you want to explain about that and how the sort of Part 36 offer then works, you know, at that magic moment, what happens then? <laughs> Absolutely. It's, um, it's a funny thing because you, you you write all these letters, but for another day. So you kind of know that your audience is going to be, as you say, the judge after that, that um, decision has been delivered. Um, so a bit of predicting the future required. Um, but yes, specifically on sort of the differences and what it means, the main differences between Part 36 offers and Calder Bank offers are in respect of the cost consequences that can flow from accepting or rejecting an offer. So all of this business that goes on after judgment. So the headline point to note really is that part 36 punishes parties who turn down offers of settlement, then proceed to trial and ultimately get a worse outcome than they could have obtained had they accepted their opponent's offer. So it's, it is a, a little bit of a you know, future gazing um, when you make that decision to accept or reject an offer. 
say listening you guys listening to us talk about all of the various different scenarios that could arise we've set out the cost consequences that can occur under part 36 um, in a table for the podcast details so that will give you a bit further reading if, if you're so inclined so for a claimant um, this means that if they reject a defendant's part 36 offer but then get awarded less money at trial or they lose altogether they will pay the defendant's costs from the end of the relevant period. And that's the period that is set when you draft that uh, with, uh, part 36 letter or, or fill in the pro forma. For a defendant, it means that if the claimant offers to settle and they reject the offer, but then at trial, the judge awards the claimant as much or more than the rejected offer, the defendant will pay costs on the indemnity basis with punitive interest on those costs and an additional lump sum. Um, so it's pretty significant consequences. And just to try and illustrate that in, in some numbers, we'll just take, take an example. So let's assume that the claimant sues the defendant for one million pounds. The defendant puts in a defense. The claimant then thinks, let's make an offer. So they offer via part 36 to accept 500,000 pounds. So half of their claim from the defendant in settlement. The defendant turns it down and off the parties go to trial. But if the claimant wins at trial and, and gets at least £500,000, the defendant is then liable for the claimant's costs on the indemnity basis. So that, in short, means without any assessment of how reasonably those costs were incurred, plus interest of up to 10% above base rate on both the costs and the awarded sum, um, the claimant would also get a lump sum calculated on the amount awarded as sort of a, you know, a bonus prize. So if they were awarded the million pounds, then they could get up to a maximum of another £75,000. Quite clear to see that the consequences of the defendant rejecting that £500,000 offer back in the day are, are hefty. Um, just to flip it on the other side, this is much simpler. If the claimant loses at trial, or wins but gets less than that £500,000, in that case, the costs would be decided as normal. So the claimant still has won its claim, let's say, for, for a lesser amount or even, or even lost, but there's no penalty for the claimant in that scenario for failing to beat its own offer. So no additional penalty other than the, um, the normal cost rules uh, that Sam mentioned at the outset. Um, so hopefully that's not too heavy an example. Yeah, I mean, it's designed, isn't it, to put the person receiving the offer, you know, under some real, real pressure exactly. because of those penalties that they will face if, you know, if they don't do better at trial. Um, yeah, it's making me laugh, actually, when <laughs> when Sam said about having to learn all of that at law school, I was thinking, oh, yeah. God, that must have been a nightmare. I'm so pleased I qualified before the civil procedure <laughs> rules came into force. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, there are some benefits to being old. <laughs> and it's a long old list as well. It's bad for law school and bad for a party that ignores it or doesn't beat it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, whenever anybody receives a Part 36 offer, you know, it takes a little while to work out what all these yeah. various, you know, how it's all going to turn out. But, you know, the long and short of it is you don't want to be the party who, you know, rejects an offer and 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 doesn't do better at trial. Um, exactly. And, you know, I mean, as you've said, you know, indemnity costs means you are going to be contributing a, a greater percentage, you know, effectively that's penalty interest on top of costs. Yep. Um, you know, it's it, it all going to add up to some quite significant amounts of money, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And when it comes to our called bank offers, Sam, they don't have quite the same weighty consequences, do they? I think that's fair to say. Um, what, what happens? How do those work? Absolutely. So at the end of the trial, where there hasn't been a Part 36 offer, uh, but there have been called bank offers, the judge will use their discretion uh, as far as they see fit, basically, so that, that allows for greater flexibility when it comes to costs assessments. I mean, that is subject to the usual rules under Part 44 of the, the Civil Procedure Rules, and also that's subject to the default position of the loser paying the winner's costs. But if the judge decides that the winner had behaved particularly unreasonably, then rather than awarding say 90 to 100% of the costs in favour of the winner, it could be reduced down you know, 50 to 60% or even lower in, in the more extreme cases. So there's that element of flexibility that you don't get in the Part 36 offer, but a party who is pretty confident as to their position but is willing to make a generous offer might consider that part 36 is preferable because that would put the pressure on the other party in the way that Caroline's just described. Yes, that's right. I mean, it comes up to that point of, you know, considering your particular circumstances before you make an offer and, you know, looking at whether part 36 really is going to work for you, whether it really is, you know, can you make an offer in the right way and will, will it have the right consequences? But it's always worth thinking about because of that that pressure point if part 36 works for your particular scenario then um it's uh, it, you know it does add the pressure on the other side to take your offer very seriously so well thank you very much both for those helpful explanations of call the bank and part 36 offers uh, particularly interested in the history behind call the bank i think i studied that a long time ago i've forgotten it was a family case <laughs> of course it was um <laughs> Uh, listeners will appreciate we've only had time to cover the basics today, but um, we will be back before too long to look at some of the tactical considerations when using settlement offers and what can go wrong with them. But for now, stay safe and we hope you're all enjoying the ability to have a drink and a meal indoors again. Thanks. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.